A Darker Shade of Magic by V.E. Schwab. For the ones who dream of stranger worlds. Such is a quandary when it comes to magic, that it is not an issue of strength, but balance. For too little power and we become weak, too much and we become something else entirely. Tyrion Serenz, head priest of London Sanctuary. One, the Traveler. Kel wore a very peculiar coat. It had neither one side, which would be conventional, nor two, which would be unexpected, but several, which was, of course, impossible. The first thing he did whenever he stepped out of one London and into another was take off the coat and turn it inside out once or twice, or even three times, until he found the side he needed. Not all of them were fashionable, but they each served a purpose. There were ones that blended in and ones that stood out and the one that served no purpose, but of which he was just particularly fond. So when Kel passed through the palace wall and into the anteroom, he took a moment to steady himself. It took its toll moving between worlds. And then he shrugged out of his red high collared coat and turned it inside out from right to left so that it became a simple black jacket. Well, a simple black jacket elegantly lined with silver thread and adorned with two gleaming collar columns of silver buttons, just because he adopted a more modest palette when he was abroad, wishing neither to offend the ro local royalty nor draw attention, didn't mean he had to sacrifice style. Oh, kings, said Kel as he fastened one of the buttons on the coat on his coat. He was starting to think like Rye. <laughs> on the wall behind him, he could just make out the ghosted symbol made by his passage, like a footprint in the sand already fading. He never bothered to mark the door from this side, simply because he never went back this way. Windsor's distance from London was terribly inconvenient, considering the fact that when traveling between worlds, Cal could only move between one, between a place in one and the same exact place in another, which was a problem because there was no Windsor Castle a day's journey from Red London. In fact, Cal had just come through the stone wall of a courtyard belonging to a wealthy gentleman in a town called Desan. Desan was, on the whole, a very pleasant place. Windsor was not. Impressive to be sure, but not pleasant. The marble counter rang against, ran against the wall, and on its basin, a water waited. <laughs> a marble counter ran against the wall, and on it, a basin of water waited for him, as it always did. He rinsed his bloody hand as well as the silver crown he'd used for passage then slipped the cord it hung on over his head and tucked the coin back beneath his collar. In the hall beyond, he could hear the shuffle of feet, a low murmur of servants and guards. He had chosen the anteroom specifically to avoid them. He knew very well how the little prince regent liked him being here. And the last thing Kel wanted was an audience, a cluster of ears and eyes and mouths reporting the details of his visit back to the throne. Above the counter and the basin hung a mirror in a gilded frame, and Kel checked his reflection quickly. His hair, a reddish brown, sweeped, swept over one eye, and he did not fix it, though he did take a moment to smooth the shoulders of his coat before passing through a set of doors to meet his host. The room was stiflingly warm. The windows latched despite what looked like a lovely October day, and a fire raged oppressively in the hearth. 
George III sat behind it, beside it, a robe dwarfing his withered frame and a tea tray untouched before his knees. When Kel came in, the king gripped the edges of his chair. Who's there? He called without turning. Robbers! Ghosts! I don't believe ghosts would answer, your majesty, said Kel, announcing himself. I don't believe ghosts. Uh, the ailing king broke into a rotting grin. Master Kel, he said, you've kept me waiting. No more than a month, he said, stepping forward. King George squinted his blind eyes. It's been longer, I'm sure. I promise it hasn't. Maybe not for you, said the king, but time isn't the same for the mad and the blind. Kel smiled. The king was in good form today. It wasn't always so. He was never sure what state he'd find his majesty in. Perhaps it seemed like more than a month because the last time Kel visited, the king had been in one of his moods, and Kel had barely been able to calm his fraying nerves long enough to deliver his message. Maybe the year has changed, continued the king, and not the month. Ah, but the year is the same. And what year is that? Kel's brow furrowed. 1819, he said. A cloud passed over King George's face, and then he simply shook his head and said, Time, as if that one word could be to blame for everything. Sit, sit, he added, gesturing at the room. There must be another chair around here somewhere. There wasn't. The room was shockingly sparse, and Kel was certain the doors in the hall were locked and unlocked from without, not within. The king held out a gnarled hand. They'd taken away his rings to keep him from hurting himself, and his nails were cut to nothing. My letter, he said, and for an instant, Kel saw a glimmer of the George he once was. Regal. Kel patted the pockets of his coat and realized he'd forgotten to take the notes out before changing. He shrugged out of the jacket and returned it for a moment to its red self, digging through its folds until he found the envelope. When he pressed it into the king's hand, the latter folded The latter folded it and ca caressed the wax seal. The Red Throne's emblem, emblem, the Red Throne's emblem, a chalice with the rising sun, when brought, then brought the paper to his nose and inhaled. Roses, he said wistfully. He meant the magic. Kel never noticed the faint, aromatic scent of Red London clinging to his clothes, but whenever he traveled, someone invariably told him that he smelled like fleshly, freshly cut flowers. Some said tulips, others stargazers, chrysanthemums, peonies. To the King of England, it was always roses. Kel was glad to know it was a pleasant scent, even if he couldn't smell it. He could smell gray London, the smoke, and white London, blood. But to him, Red London only sim simply smelled like home. Open it for me, instructed the king, but don't mar the seal. Kel did as he was told and withdrew the contents. For once he was grateful the king could no longer see, so he could not know how brief the letter was. Three short lines, a courtesy paid to an ailing figurehead, but nothing more. It's from my queen, explained Kel. The king nodded. Go on, he commanded, affecting a stately countenance that warred with his fragile form and his faltering voice. Go on. Kel swallowed. Greetings to his majesty, King George III, he read. 
from a neighboring throne. The queen did not refer to it as the Red Throne or send greetings from Red London, even though the city was in fact quite crimson thanks to the rich pervasive light of the river, because she did not think of it that way. To her and to everyone else who inhabited only one London, there was little need to differentiate between them. When the rulers of one conversed with those of another, they simply called them others or neighbors or on occasion, and a particularly in regard to white London, less flattering terms. Only those who could move among the Londons needed a way to keep them straight. And so Kell, inspired by the lost city known to all as Black London, had given each remaining capital a color. Gray for the magicless city, red for the healthy empire, white for the starving world. In truth, the cities themselves bore little resemblance to one another and the countries around and beyond bore even less. The fact that they were all called London was its own mystery, though the prevailing theory was that one of the cities has taken the name long ago, before the doors were sealed, and the only things allowed through were letters between kings and queens. As to which city had first laid claim to the name, none could agree. We hope, you, we hope to learn that you are well, continued the queen's letter and that the season is fair in your city as it is ours. Kel paused. There was nothing more, save a signature. King George wrung his hands. Is that all it says? He asked. Kel hesitated. No, he said, folding the letter. That's only the beginning. He cleared his throat and began to pace as he put his thoughts together and, and put them into the queen's voice. Thank you for asking after our family, she says. The king and I are well. Prince Rye, on the other hand, continues to impress and infuriate in equal measure. But that, is, that at least gone... Hmm, what? <laughs> Sorry, wait. But at has at least gone the month without breaking his neck or taking an unsuitable bride. Thanks be to Calalone for keeping him from doing either or both. Kell had every intention of letting the queen linger on his own merits, but just then the clock on the wall chimed five, and Kell swore under his breath. He was running late. Until my next letter, he finished hurriedly, stay happy and stay well with fondness, Her Highness Amira, Queen of Arms. Kell waited for the king to say something, but his blind eyes had a steady, faraway look, and Kell feared he had lost him. He set the folded note on the tea tray and was halfway to the wall when the king spoke up. I don't have a letter for her, he murmured. That's all right, said Kel softly. And the king hadn't been able to write one for years. Some months he tried, dragging the quill haphazardly along the parchment, and some he insisted on having Kel transcribe. But most months he simply told Kel the message, and Kel promised to remember. You see, I didn't have the time added the king, trying to salvage a vestige of his dignity. Kel let him have it. I understand. I'll give the royal family your regards. Kel turned to go, and again the old king called out to stop him. Wait, wait, he said. Come back. Kel paused. His eyes went back to the clock. Late and getting later, he pictured the prince regent sitting at his table in St. James, gripping his chair and quietly stewing. The thought made Kel smile, so he turned back toward the king in the, 
as the latter pulled something from his robe with fumbling fingers. It was a coin. It's fighting, he said, cupping the metal with his weathered hands as if it were precious and fragile. I can't feel the magic anymore. I can't smell it. A coin is a coin, your majesty. Not so, and you know it, grumbled the old king. Turn out your pockets. Kel sighed. You'll get me in trouble. Come, come, said the king. Our little secret. Kel dug his hand into his pocket. The first time he had visited the kingdom of England, he had given a coin as proof that he, of who he was and where he had come from. The story of the other Londons was entrusted to the crown and handed down from heir to heir, but it had been years since a traveler had come, and King George had taken one look at the silver of a boy and squinted and held out his meaty hand, hand. and Kel had set the coin in his palm, a simple lin, much like a gray shilling, only marked with a red star instead of a royal face. The king closed his fist over the coin and brought it to his nose, inhaling the scent. And then he had smiled and tucked the coin into his coat welcomed and welcomed Kel inside. From that day on, every time Kel paid a visit, the king would insist the magic had worn off the coin and made him treat it for another, one new and pocket warm. And every time Kel would say it was forbidden, it was expressly. And every time the king would insist that it would be their little secret and Kel would sigh and fetch a fresh bit of metal from his coat. Now he plucked the old lint out of the king's palm and replaced it with a new one, folding George's gnarled fingers gently over it. Yes, yes, cooed the ailing king to the coin in his palm. Take care, said Kel as he turned to go. Yes, yes, said the king, his focus fading until he was lost to the world and to his guest. Curtains gathered in the corner of the room and Kel pulled the heavy material aside to reveal a mark on the patterned wallpaper. A simple circle bisected by a line drawn in blood a month ago. On another wall in another room, or in another place, the same mark stood. They were as handles on the opposite sides of the same door. Kel's blood, when paired with a token, allowed him to move between the worlds. He needn't spe specify a place, because wherever he was, that's where he would be. But to make a door within the world, both sides had to be marked by the same exact symbol. Symbol. Close wasn't close enough. Kel had learned the hard way. The symbol on the wall was still clear from his last visit. The edges only slightly smeared, but it didn't matter. It had to be redone. He rolled up his sleeve and freed the knife he kept strapped inside of his forearm. It was a lovely thing, that knife. A work of art silver from tip to hilt and monogrammed with the letters K and L, the only relic from another life, a life he didn't know, or at least he couldn't remember. Kel brought the blade to the back of his forearm. He had already carved one line today for the door that had brought him this far. Now he carved a second, his blood a rich ruby red welled up, over, welled up and over and he returned the knife to its sheath, touched his finger to the cut and then to the wall redrawing the circle in a line that ran through it. Kel guided his sleeve down over the wound. He'd treat all the cuts once he was home, and, the cast, and he cast a last glance back at the babbling king before pressing his palm flat to the mark on the wall. It hummed with magic. As tasin, he said, transfer. 
The, pa the patterned paper rippled and softened and gave way under his touch, and Kel stepped forward and through. <laughs>